Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hilo, the weekly current affairs and pop culture podcast brought to you by Dolly Alderton and Pandora Sykes. Thank you so much to everyone who came to the first show in the Hilo Experience Tour last Tuesday at the Barbican. It was so fun. It was so fun. It was um, really overwhelming and then really fun and the audience was amazing and we didn't realise quite how silly and gross it was until we were on stage and then we very quickly did realise. And the same with my skirt. I didn't realise quite how short <laughs> my dress was until I got on stage. And I was flashing my knickers to the top circle, so I'm very sorry about that. Were they nice knickers? Uh, yes, I made sure they were because you did warn me when I showed you a picture. You were like, have you done a knicker check? But would I listen? No. <laughs> but we're not going to change the smut for anyone coming for the, to the other three shows. I might lengthen the hem of my skirt but the smut is staying firmly in place we're going to dublin on sunday so we are really excited to see some of you on sunday evening i've never been to dublin before i love dublin it's the most beautiful city and you can have a medicinal guinness <laughs> you're so excited about medicinal of iron. i'm going to be shoving it down your gob <laughs> pandora i've been sitting on some absolute whoppers of news stories Ooh, for you this week sitting on a whopper i've been sitting on a oh, there you go that's a taste of what you're in for in Dublin firstly I think Rod Stewart's people may be listening to the Hilo because the Sun reported this week in the most Sun way possible that Rod Stewart has axed some of his biggest hits for fear of offending the Me Too movement (laughs) the Sun reported among the hits getting the boot from his shows are Hot Legs Do You Think I'm Sexy and Tonight's the Night which were literally the three that we said on the Hilo in the last episode Dolly you're really getting ideas above your station here Anyway, a source told The Sun on Sunday, obsessed with this source, by the way, absolutely obsessed. Back in the day, Rod was obviously a bit of a rogue and quite the ladies' man. Songs and lyrics penned in the 1970s and 80s when attitudes to sex and courting were very different do not reflect how he feels today. But just as times have changed, so has Rod. Listen to this bit of shade. Nowadays, he's a happily married man and father of eight. And he doesn't feel it necessary to sing about doing the deed or explicit female body parts. Body parts. In the wake of the ongoing hashtag MeToo movement, it all feels a bit outdated and he would hate to offend any of his younger fans. The Sun then did a box out suggesting more progressive versions of his songs, which included... Some of these are absolutely unacceptable. Hashtag MeToo Nights the Night. Instead of you wear it well, you wear it well into your 20s. This is when it gets a bit mean. Instead of handbags and glad rags, handbags and granddads. This old heart of mine, this old part of mine. Instead of hot legs, not legs. Instead of... This, I think, is cruel. Instead of I am sailing, I am flailing. Instead of Maggie May, Maggie May not. Instead of Baby Jane, grown-up Jane. And instead of I was only joking, I was only woking. (laughs) 
Those are absolutely <laughs> terrible. You know, my older sister met Rod Stewart and Penny Lancaster in a bar a couple of years ago. And she chatted to them for ages and said they were really nice. And at the end, when she was having dinner with a friend, she came up and uh, said goodbye and told her she looked beautiful. Oh, gel. I once saw Penny Lancaster walking down Marlebone High Street pushing my baby goddaughter in a pram while her mum was otherwise engaged. And she said to me, your daughter is beautiful. And I said, thank you. Because I thought it was more likely that she would go home that night and mention me to Rod Stewart if she said, oh, I saw this mum today with a beautiful daughter rather than I saw this woman pushing my friend's pram. Anyway... Christ alive, is anyone else still awake? <laughs> anyway, I'm sure that is the reason why Rod Stewart is listening to The Hilo every week and taking on board our criticism. He has become your new Adam Buxton. I think we need a Rod Stewart free week next week. No, please. Tell me about more whoppers that you've been sitting on. Another whopper. You are going to be absolutely addicted to this story. It's actually an old news story that has resurfaced on Twitter this week thanks to the writer Sarah Pinborough. Um, she tweeted saying, I think this is my favourite news story of all time. And I had forgotten that I read it in 2012 and I was in love with it then and even more in love with it now. So the headline is, Missing Woman Mystery Solved. A group of tourists spent hours Saturday night looking for a missing woman in Iceland only to find her among the search party. The group was travelling through Iceland on a tour bus and stopped near a volcanic canyon. Soon there was word of a missing passenger. The woman who had changed clothes didn't recognise the description of herself and joined in the search. But the search was called off at 3am when it became clear the missing woman was in fact accounted for and searching for herself. <laughs> Aren't we all searching for ourselves in Iceland or otherwise? It's such a beautiful metaphor, there's absolutely a sto- like a, a short story in this. I know. It's beautiful. And uh, another whopper. Beautiful. <laughs> it is. It's absolutely beautiful. <laughs> another whopper. Did you read about the chicken nugget scandal and police intervention? No, but you're going to enlighten us all. A 24-year-old vegan who has not eaten meat since she was three contacted the police after a group of friends made her eat a chicken nugget as a prank. She was recently at a party and her friends gave her what they said were chickenless chicken nuggets. She said they didn't taste right, but because she was drunk, she dismissed it. She said she found out the next day when her sister sent her a message telling her to check her friend's Snapchat story. She said, I took a screen recording of the video and on the Snapchat story, it was her friends tricking her into eating chicken nuggets by telling her that it was sun-fed chickens, which meant that there's no chicken meat in it. She said she was incredibly drunk. The girl said, I took a screen recording of the video, took it to the police, and on the grounds of food tampering, three of my ex-friends are facing charges. I mean, I'm loath to offer much of a response because um, I know the vegan community gets very cross. Every time we mention veganism, we lose another another ten listeners. Um, I mean, even that in itself is a bit of a dig, Dolly, isn't it? Um, I mean, losing three friends is extreme, so she must have felt strongly about it. Look, it's an extreme reaction, but I have to say I'm on her side. Are you? Yeah, as a vegetarian, I think... It's a bit of a dick move. It's a massive dick move, because that's someone who's trying to do something good, and I don't know what her reasons for veganism is, but I've never heard a reason for veganism that isn't very honourable. So 
Yeah, I do think it's a bit of a dick move. I don't think she needed to call the police, is all I would say. What will they be charged? So they'll be charged with food tampering fine? Criminal record? Uh, I don't know. The Metro is speculating. I think it... Of course they were. I think it would... I think it would be a fine. I should also say this is a story from Reddit and (laughs) none of it's been proven, so it could be totally made up, but uh, I enjoyed it anyway, so I thought we should bring it to your attention. Keep on top of that story and let us know. More food-related news. My final whopper of the day is uh, I wanted to flag to all fellow Wagamummer obsessives, hello, Nikki Sykes, that there is a brief introduction on delivery only of the hot katsu curry. Is it normally a cold dish? No, it's spicy. Oh! <laughs> well, that made me feel a bit sick, you saying that. Cold katsu curry. Uh, yes, yeah, spicy katsu curry. Panda, will you be ordering the hot katsu curry? I can't get it in my parts. Oh, yeah. No, Wagamama. You know this, um, which is why this is a cruel and unnecessary segment. Sorry. But um, I hope everyone who does get the hot katsu curry enjoys it. Well, apparently they're trialling it for a month just on Deliveroo. And if people love it, then it could be pushed out across all restaurants. So that is my battle cry to everyone. Yeah, it's huge news that. Similarly huge news. <laughs> Olivia Coleman from The Crown has admitted that her husband stole Lou Roll from Buckingham Palace. I doubt she thought that would make the entire page three of the broadsheets. It's because <laughs> Olivia <laughs> Goldman doesn't ever say anything about her personal life. So the most innocuous thing becomes headline news. Olivia Coleman plus Buckingham Palace. Yeah, that's Quite hilarious. Cool. Who was the wrong. one who did coke in Buckingham Palace and the male were obsessed with it? Stephen Fry. No. He said in his memoir that he did a line of coke in Buckingham Palace and the male had the most male reaction of all time and the headline was, what a conceited cokehead! Exclamation mark. Quite surprised you revealed that. It's a little bit icky. I mean, you clearly love it. <laughs> no, I don't. I just think, I just think, what's the difference between doing it in Buckingham Palace or the Groucho Club? I forget this is when you're a royalist, the pandy. queen. I'm just thinking of little Poor queenie. Old queenie. Hugh Grant has complained that the cinema is too loud. <laughs> Am I too old, or is the cinema capital letters much too loud? He tweeted after going to see Joker. He quipped, "The joke is on us." Do you agree with him? Uh, no, I don't think the cinema is too loud. Do you? I find it quite loud now. Charlie nodded. He thinks it's too loud. My mother finds it very loud. But that's because Charlie's in the generation above us, as we often talk about, so... He's not. <laughs> He's a millennial. You just don't understand what a millennial is. <laughs> you literally don't know the ages of millennials. What is it? What is it? 22 to 37. So we are a mid-millennial. Right, OK. There's also been lots in the news this week about how adverts before the cinema are too long which I completely agree with they're up to 40 minutes now I know I don't mind that because it means it gives me a long time to pick snacks but if you're there it's quite a long time to be yeah I quite like the trailers do you not I think that it means that you can end up leaving for the cinema at 6pm and get back at midnight and that does seem like quite a long evening yeah the days of going to out for dinner and then going to the cinema are gone unless mm. you want it to take the whole weekend. Mm. We're going to go for a long weekend now to the view. When did it happen? Did it happen incrementally? Yes. Because I remember always yeah. when you would see a cinema time when I was a teenager, it would be the film starts 10 minutes after. I've got a theory. There used to be film and still are film trailers all the time on the TV or Sky channels or stuff yes. like that. But we're streaming so much of what we watch now. Yeah, very true. That you're not seeing movie trailers anymore. Yeah. Yeah. So they have to put in hundreds of the things before you start. 
I've got some real juices that I want to go see at the cinema at the moment. I really want to go see that Joanna Hogg film, The Souvenir. Apparently it's amazing. I really want to go see Downton Abbey, obviously. At the cinema? Yeah, it's a film. Wow. Yeah. And I really want to see, have you read about the Billy Piper film that premiered this week at the London Film Festival? It's a biography. (laughs) No. It's like a kind of surrealist uh, observation of a dysfunctional relationship. And she directed it. I'm not sure if she wrote it as well, but apparently it is astonishingly good. Wow. Do you think Honey to the Bee, That's You For Me is on the soundtrack? (laughs) Pandora. I would like to see... No, I really like Billy Piper. In slightly weightier news, the Prime Minister of Ethiopia, Abiy Ahmed, has won the Nobel Peace Prize for his efforts to achieve peace and end the 20-year war between Ethiopia and Eritrea. And Nazan and Zagari Ratcliffe's daughter, Gabriella, has been reunited with her father, Richard, in the UK, who she hasn't seen for three years. Now five, she returned to the UK from Tehran, where she was living with her grandparents, close to where her mother, the UK-Iranian aid worker Nazanin, is imprisoned in order to start state school. Despite numerous politicians, Jeremy Hunt, Boris Johnson, uh, Rhys Mogg, John Burko, all declaring at various points that the capture and treatment of Nazanin by Iran is shameful, she is yet to be returned to the UK. UK. Her MP Tulip Sadiq released this statement, which I thought was really interesting and I wanted to relay a little bit of it here. I have now dealt with three prime ministers, three foreign secretaries and four Middle East ministers about this case. Every single one of those politicians has looked me in the eye and said that this has nothing to do with the debt that we owe Iran. But we know that's not true. We owe Iran 400 million because of a sale of tanks that happened many years ago. Nazanin and her family have been told by revolutionary guards that the debt is linked to her imprisonment. I want to make it crystal clear that I don't advocate paying for us to release hostages, but the truth is that this isn't an exchange for Nazanin. This is money that we owe Iran. You need to pay the debt back so that my constituent is released. It must be so incredibly frustrating for her and her family to for no one to get to the bottom of it. I mean, we've yeah, been reading about it for three and a half years. Yeah. Um, and her husband, Richard, said he's got another meeting with Boris Johnson coming up. But I suppose ultimately there's nothing they can, they can't make a run release her. Very different change of tone. I've got some new stats about Brits <laughs> from press release poll corner. Oh, I like that. That's what we should call it. Press release poll corner. Yeah. It is a um, clearly definable segment of the High Loan, press release poll it's, corner. It's a clearly definable segment of your of inbox. Like all British media. It's so funny. When, when you start thinking about, like, when we're putting the High Loan together every week, we're like, oh, should we see if there are some interesting polls? That feels like such a, polls, a mad thing to say. But then you, then you look at all the other, like, TV shows of that week and what's being written in the weeklies and the features and the comment pieces. It's just all on these bloody polls. Well, that's all all, all news is, is yeah. polls and studies probably more than polls. <laughs> but no, completely. And I think you need to come up with a catchier name, though, than a press release poll. I know, I'll find, I'll find a better one. I'll find a punning one. A nationwide survey commissioned by Villa Maria with Opinion Matters, has revealed Brits' conversational preferences and six top pointers for succeeding in love. The top traits Brits want in a romantic partner are a good sense of humour and kindness. Fortunately, the nation isn't that shallow, with only 8% of us saying we would look for beauty first in a romantic partner. I agree on the humour and kindness. I don't know if I agree that only 8% of people give a shit about looks. Talking shite. (laughs) When conversing, make sure you're listening, make eye contact and laughing when appropriate. Brits view these as the most important ingredients to make the perfect conversation. 
Don't know about eye contact. I don't think British people have very good eye contact at all. It's Americans like, are obsessed. It's exhausting. Yeah. I just literally just held my gaze Eyeballing intensely. It. When you're dating, you really notice when someone is really confident with eye contact. And it is You like very, it? It's hot, yeah. But only if you fancy them. Otherwise, it's creepy and unsettling. Don't jabber. A quarter of us regret talking too much during conversations. Definitely guilty. <laughs> Me too. I can't remember a date in recent memory where I haven't woken up and remembered hazily when I explained in depth why I believe in reincarnation and why I believe I'm uh, currently on my last life. God, I'm so glad I've never been on a date with you. I've never been subject to that. <laughs> date specific. I save it just for seduction. Give money, sex and the in-laws a swerve. These are seen as the trickiest topics to talk about with loved ones and could be the potential source of arguments. So this means not on dates. This, this bit means with a partner. Yeah, I was going to say, they've, they've scuttled forward to a next stage of a relationship. I like that they want to give, avoid talking about money. That's sort of impossible when you're it's also, married. It's quite important. It's very British. Which I like. Just let's hope we have enough to pay the bills. Let's not actually talk about how much we've got. 21%, I actually think this is quite interesting, 21% of women regret not engaging in an important conversation due to fear of sounding stupid. I'm surprised it's not higher. Yeah, it's, I think that's it's quite still founding, so sad, isn't it? Founding principle of the high-low, actually. Yeah. Although don't be I, scared to talk about stuff where you sound stupid. Yeah, and I think there's particularly something about women in a romantic context feeling like somehow they have to sort of lessen their intellect or their curiosity for, for fear of seeming stupid. Or just lessen their, themselves. Themselves. Or just themselves down. I always think in conversations about this, of that amazing quote from... Prince Philip that I Instagrammed years ago that I remember you found very funny where he said, I don't ever recall seeming anything but very confident when talking about things for which I know nothing about. <laughs> which I just loved. That's one of his better quotations. They're not all yes, of our board. Yes, Let's make that clear. We're not a champion of Prince Philip's quotations. I just found that one very funny. I've got some news from press release, Paul Corner, that I think you'll enjoy, on what John Lewis stopped selling this year. I think, and I'm not being sarcastic here, that it really reflects the shifting zeitgeist. Tell me. So this is what's been left behind. Drones, following the disruption in airports. Yeah. Landlines, sales are down 45% since 2014. Oh, that makes me sad. Camcorders, clutch bags, suspenders... Cocktail shakers. Apparently artisan tonics are dominating the drinks trolleys. I think that's true. God, I want to write a column about this. This is so interesting. I'll forward this email to you. And fish kettles. What the hell is a fish kettle? I think it's a kettle in which you boil a fish. I mean, I know that, but why? <laughs> I don't Clearly know. John Lewis agrees. It's one of those amazing, like, 80s kitchen things. Like, you know, your mum has, like, a lazy Susan... Or a hostess trolley. I love a, I love a lazy Susan, actually. Or a hostess trolley. What the fuck is that for? That it sort of looks like a drinks trolley, but you would you would um, you'd go in and out from the dining room with all your crockery. But it's on where it. you heat. No, it's where you put food in to just kind of stagnate and get crispy and dry. Oh, it's like a hot trolley. Yeah, suspenders. That's the one that interests me the most. People are wearing more comfortable undergarments. I'd agree with that. People are having less sex though, aren't they? So is it something to do with that? No, I think it's just that clothes have become more comfortable. 
Suspenders, though, that's that's a sexy item. That's a sex item. So why? I don't know. I've never owned a suspender. Why are they going down? Is it also maybe that they're quite a retro expression of sexuality now? Like, I wonder what's happened to those slippers with the little fluffy the little fluffy things on them. I I genuinely think with the suspenders, it's just because you can't attach them to these all these really sort of comfortable, tense cell, cotton-free, stretchy, seamless knickers. I Maybe. mean, I love all that. And a stretchy crop top. Think of all those brands you love. Actually, yeah. you quite like the old sort of hoist and joist numbers, don't you? I do like them. But then maybe this is actually... Well, maybe then maybe the hot are... take on this is that this is a good sign for feminism, maybe that women aren't, I don't know, trussing themselves up anymore or something. So, you're, I mean, you you will be in the suspender shopping category. Mm. But uh, to be honest, I doubt if you were buying your suspenders, you'd have gone to John Lewis anyway. <laughs> I cannot comment on that, Pandora. And in terms of what they've seen going up, sales of reusable water bottles. That's good. Yeah. Uh, the return of Fleabag and Peaky Blinders saw sales of black jumpsuits and flat caps boom respectively. I have to say I've noticed the flat cap boom and I am not on board with it. Uh, That's a hard thing to pull off. I've seen a lot of men wearing them and I do not like them. Did you all hear that? (laughs) She does (laughs) not like them. And I have seen more women in black jumpsuits plunging black jumpsuits but that's because... That jumpsuit in this first episode of series two was so iconic. And apparently it was bought for like 40 quid from a concession stand downstairs at Topshop. Was it? Yeah. I assumed it was like Galvan. No, no, no. Which made me like it even more. In personal news, I have decided I am completely and utterly infatuated with Peter Crouch. Since reading an extract of his new book, I, Robot, How to Be a Footballer 2, in this week's Sunday Times. I mean, you're not alone. Look at how successful his podcast is. Here's my favourite bit from the extract. I took Abby to Crete a few years ago. En route to our villa, we passed through Mali, a site of regrettable holidays of the past. I felt the bad memories come back to haunt me as I watched the bars go by. Then suddenly, hang on abs, is that David Bentley, the Blackburn and Spurs winger? We ended up having a night out with him of spectacular size. At one point, all three of us were dancing on a table, at least until Abby disappeared backwards and crash-landed on the tiled floor. We took her back to the villa, called a doctor, and were told that she'd broken her coccyx. I'll never forget the image of... (laughs) I'll never forget the image of her lying face down on the bed, the female doctor massaging cream into Abby's naked arse as she repeatedly threw up into a bucket. None of that would have happened without David Bentley. Don't tell me he didn't fulfil his potential. A, CJ loves that. And B, <laughs> oh my God, as someone in severe coccyx pain at the moment, that literally makes me shiver. I know, it made me twinge when I read it. I just love that image of her kind of strewn over the bed with her face in a bucket. I just, I've always been obsessed with Abby Clancy. I think she is so funny and beautiful and cute and amazing. And there's now a, I'm obsessed with her husband. There's a great interview by Sophie Hayward with her, if you Google it. Oh, really? I think it was from last year or the year before. They're both very funny. Yeah. What's in the mailbag this week? We had an astonishing number of emails about the Joker movie. They were all along the same lines, and that's that it's a brilliant film, very worth seeing, and that the pre-release chatter about its incel sympathies are largely unfounded upon viewing. Genevieve said... I'm not a comic slash Marvel fan at all, but the depth of this character study astonished me. It is a portrait of trauma and deeply insightful into the ways that fatherhood fails us. 
It's an amazingly sympathetic view of unmanaged mental health combined with a full life of cruelties. It's Hollywood, but so much of it is very real. Becker said, In my opinion, the film in no way represents the Joker's descent into mental illness and evil as a result of not getting the attention of a woman. Instead, the film is a powerful depiction of mental illness and the brutally unforgiving society in which the film is set. Funding is cut for mental health services, leaving Arthur abandoned and without his medication. Cultural tensions between the haves and have-nots boil over and lead to him losing his mind. It's a really interesting counterpoint. It's one I have seen a few times. As we said last week, we were more discussing the controversy surrounding it rather than summarising and dismissing a film that we haven't seen. But I do think that sounds really interesting. Also worth mentioning, since last week's show aired, that it's been reported that Gary Glitter will not be personally profiting from his song in the film because he sold the rights to it years ago. Oh, right, OK. I still think it's quite a an odd move for a movie because they were always going to get loads of criticism about that unless it was revealed that he wasn't making any money from it. And even then, you're kind of relying on a news story to go viral about it, mm. aren't you? Yeah, I would have been more explicit about that. What are your cultural picks of the week, Panda? A couple of interviews I really enjoyed. Ronan Farrow by Emma Brox for The Guardian to promote his new book, Catch and Kill. Ronan Farrow is a 31-year-old journalist, the son of Mia Farrow and uh, Woody Allen, who is quite phenomenally intelligent, went to Yale and all sorts when he was about eight years old. And he joint won the Pulitzer with Megan Toohey and Jodie Cantor for their work on the um, Weinstein scandal, but also lots of other uh, Me Too movement revelations. So whilst um, Jodie and Megan focused on some Ronan Farrow kind of broke others, for example, he broke a story at NBC about a news anchor there called Matt Lauer. So both of them were kind of doing stuff at exactly the same time and actually I recently spoke about She Said which is um, J.D. Cantor and Megan Toohey's book that came out about this investigation that they did for the New York Times and now his is the follow-up that he did for the New Yorker and I thought it was a bit unlucky for him that the book came out just after theirs but actually it seems like it covers a quite different ground and also um is, is such a good interview because you really get an insight into him as a person, what it was like to be covering the investigation as a man. You know, Emma Brox asks him if it helps that he's gay and he says he's sure it he's sure it does because it means that there's not that leering element. Mm. Um, he brings his own status into it as someone who is the child of two celebrities, so is sort of a celebrity in his own right, and how much that helped him or hindered him, because Woody Allen and Harvey Weinstein actually spoke during Ronan's investigations. He famously doesn't talk to his father, um, who he believes sexually abused his sister Dylan, and Woody Allen and Woody Allen apparently sympathised with Harvey Weinstein, um, really? who had rung him to kind of find out what Ronan's weak spots were. Um, oh or, God. you know, to be a bit like, oh, he's your son, what do I do with him? And Woody Allen had sort of said, well, good luck, sorry to hear. Sorry to hear he's after you. So Weinstein's lawyer tried to use this history of him publicly defending Dylan and criticising his father against him, saying that, you know, he was like basically sort of a wounded young man looking to 
right the wrongs of his own life. And Ronan says, you know, it was absurdist to the point of theatre, but it was also quite lacerating on a personal level because you're working so hard to do a meticulous and fair reporting job and then suddenly all these issues that have nothing to do with it and that are personal and painful are being thrown at you, like my sister's assault. It's a dirty move. What I think was really interesting is he admits in that piece that actually, rather than him having this agenda with his sister and of never getting kind of retribution from their father and thus taking it out on Weinstein. He says that actually he didn't support Dylan at first. Um, He says he was a real dick about it. And it was only later that he became her ally. So he has gone through this journey of his own and he, he's so eloquent as you can imagine by someone so fiercely intelligent. Um, and the way he kind of talks about just his his identity and masculinity and sexuality and celebrity and the kind of conversations that he had had with Harvey Weinstein during it. It sounds like another absolutely riveting book on the Me Too movement, but there's so much more to be said. And he also added something that I thought was really interesting on Rose McGowan on how the way that she had expressed herself in the media could be used uh, against her. He said, Rose McGowan, as it turns out, is very credible. The claim she has made checked out. She has not made a spurious accusation that I'm aware of. She recounted details that eyewitnesses at the time backed up. All the documents back it up. Her personality is neither here nor there. To all of these men who were saying, oh, but she's too crazy, I would say we interrogated her claims really, really hard. And she's a great example of that dichotomy of how sometimes when people have sustained a lot of emotional damage and behave in a way that reflects that, they open themselves up to that criticism, particularly if they're women. It becomes a cudgel that's used to dismiss them. And I thought that was such a brilliant way of putting it. He's so eloquent. Her personality is irrelevant. Yeah. It doesn't really matter if she's... um, you know, written weird tweets or done odd interviews. That's really got, as he says, that's here or there if mm. absolutely everything's been interrogated and is backed up. Um, so that's an absolutely brilliant interview. And I loved um, Paloma Faith interviewed by Helena de Bertadano for The Times. And I came away actually really in love with Paloma Faith, who is incredibly interesting and talks about so many things from being the primary earner and having a partner who's less ambitious than you to having a public persona and what people think of that. So she's sort of known as this very, like, ditzy, eccentric singer. One of my favourite things she's ever done is to thank Andrew Scott on Graham Norton for giving a moment that so many women could masturbate to. (laughs) Um, And so she's very kooky, but I hadn't read, like... I suppose a proper profile with her where you see her serious side and Helena says she's she sounds slightly like Zadie Smith she's like constantly quoting kind of philosophers and um uh, big names in literature but kind of really fluently and in this really low-key way and at one point I think Helena sort of asks her like you really don't kind of flaunt how intelligent you are and she says well I don't feel the need to put myself out there you know if someone thinks of me a certain way that says more about them. I prefer to be kind of free-floating. And I thought that was really admirable that she could have really emphasised how she wanted to be seen and how intelligent she was. Mm. And instead, there is absolutely nothing performative about it. If you discover who she really is, then you see it for yourself. If you don't, then she doesn't have a problem with that, more fool her. And I think that's quite empowering because I, like so many people, I think, try and really control 
what people think of me or really want people to see me in a certain mm-hmm. way and she just she just doesn't give a shit and I also absolutely loved Mim Skinner's piece on becoming an orphan by the age of 30 for the Sunday Times style. I'm such a fan of Mim, who's an emerging writer. She had a book out that I've mentioned several times called Jailbirds, mm. Lessons from a Women's Prison, from when she worked in a women's prison in her mid-twenties. She's still a social worker now, but is sort of writing furiously on the side. And she has such a brilliant tone. And what was so amazing about Mim is I saw her several times uh, when her book first came out and she was, you know, being incredible and eloquent and turning up to everything she should, but her mother had just died. Mm. And I can't even imagine what it must be like to be going through this kind of career apex, which is really overwhelming at this time of deep personal loss. And she wrote this really lovely, very sad, very moving, but really beautiful piece about um, the kind of scaffolding of sisterly solidarity so there's three sisters who are all quite close in age and she talks about how they all shared and still when she goes back home share her mum's bed together oh that's heartbreaking so you know they the day her book came out they all woke up in um bed together and it's a we actually often get asked about stuff to do with grief Mm. and obviously the grief network which is set up by a Hilo Listener has been bringing together lots of women in their 20s who have lost parents. I think that was specifically one of the things that a lot of the people in the network were finding difficult. So for anyone looking for um, really lovely, moving, um, but hopeful as well, pieces of writing, Mim's piece is uh, really brilliant. And I'm just so happy to be reading more by her. I think she's got so much to give. And I have been watching the capture on BBC, which is... So I tweeted, and this was so funny, I did the same trajectory apparently as everyone else. I saw your journey. I saw your I, the I, linear live tweet of your emotional journey with this programme. So on episode four, I was like, this is the best thing I've ever seen. The BBC, they're going to take over the world. Like Netflix, I don't know what you're thinking. Like, this is television. And then I got to episode six, which is the finale, and I was like, oh, <laughs> and someone on Twitter renamed it The Crapture. Um, it just all got a bit silly, but it's an incredibly interesting premise um, because I think there's quite a lot of truth in it. Basically, it's about how um, corrections can be made in justice. So when there isn't enough evidence uh, to charge someone for a crime, mm-hmm. you can um, essentially create CCTV uh using technology so it looks like someone's at the scene and therefore you've got credible evidence and someone can be put away and who who does that like crooked well i don't want to say too much about who does it in the show but not necessarily the people that you'd think would okay but what it it, what it pivots around is the idea of deep fakes which is obviously a huge concern at the moment in um politics and social culture it's something that's you know definitely going on in Russia and with technology now it becomes even harder to know you know what's fake news and what's real and Which links very much to our topic today it does link to our topic today um but it was about it's about uh yeah corrective cctv basically okay um and how how that can be manipulated so it's really really interesting it's still really interesting the end just yeah me and cj are both of the same opinion with that one. <laughs> what have you been watching this week, Doll? I did a sort of opposite journey to you, to what the journey you did with the capture, I did with the politician. 
Is it worth another go? I watched the first episode and was not into it. It was too camp glee for me. I think it's definitely worth another go because I actually watched the first two and then and then gave up. And then I was told by Sophie Wilkinson to keep going. Actually, do you know what yeah, she... Yeah, my best friend said episode five and six are amazing. Yeah. She dangled Bette Midler in front of me <laughs> and I had to bite. Um, so for anyone who isn't aware, it's a comedy drama from Netflix... Uh, which is in part made by Ryan Murphy, who's the creator of Glee, which seems to be the kind of stylistic element of it that that really divides people. Mm, mm. Um, as you said, to begin with, I just found it so rarefied and 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 so camp. And I'm a pretty camp customer, Gal. yeah. And I just found it, it it almost was inaccessible within in its style. Um, but it, I just fell completely in love with the characters and the setting. It's set in a high school in California in a very moneyed district, in a very kind of moneyed world. And it focuses on a school presidential election between two candidates and follows their dirty campaigns, respectively, which are kind of backstabbing and highly macabre and very, very comic and inflated. And uh, it's, it kind of follows their wars against each other. I'm really, really glad I stuck it out because it, it just turns into this the most sort of addictive soap opera that you can imagine with this Wes Anderson finish. The aesthetic of it is is so absorbing and it has I, I just loved its flair by the end of it. I loved how confident it was with its um, aesthetic choices and even there's like a Shirley Bassey soundtrack which sounds like it would be anachronistic in something that's like a very Gen Z millennial show but it just worked perfectly and all these little plot twists that were um, just really satisfying and I just I think it's a great show for exploring what we're desperate to explore at the moment which is the ethics and the tribalism and the public opinions and the divide of politics at the moment in a really safe place it's a really really clever tactic to basically look at where we are politically through a high school and put it in a very cartoonish high school setting but philosophically it's still looking at all the same Mm. things and it's a smart move because it means that it eradicates all um sort of blame and think pieces about what it says about the right and the left because it's just so much more abstract than that while still speaking so much to our time and yeah I love it hold out for Bette Midler and Judith Light who are in the last episode they've set up series two perfectly and also there should be a trigger warning because there are a few big musical numbers (laughs) just a handful which Sophie Wilkinson said she wished there was like a skip intro button for but I obviously loved and it's the best old numbers Vienna by Billy Joel River by Joni Mitchell and the lead has the most beautiful musical voice so I loved that sort of frill Um, but if you if you see it early on don't worry because it's not like a regular part of the program it's like very sporadic so i love that okay i'll give it another go then because i am interested if there is more to offer than the stylistic element yeah there is there is and i think i think you would really really enjoy it i'm also very taken with a woman called madame badubada who is the lead character of a new children's book from one of my favorite writers sophie dahl i've been 
completely obsessed with Sophie Dahl's writing since I was a kid. Over the years, I've consumed every morsel and crumb of her writing in journalism and books like it is an abundant, delicious feast. So I was so excited to know that she had a new book out this year and it's illustrated by Lauren O'Hara, who's a a very well-known illustrator within her own right and her drawings are completely beautiful. And the story is about a little girl called Mabel who lives by the sea in the Mermaid Hotel who becomes very intrigued by a mysterious guest called Madame Badubada and her pet tortoise and she becomes a sort of spy to um, sleuth out who this woman is and they become friends. It's so magical and the words and the drawings really do weave together in this symbiosis which completely transported me when I read it to being read to as a kid. It was such a weird experience when I was looking through this book because I had completely forgotten what it's like when you find a story that's so vivid and and imaginative and the pictures and the words align so perfectly that you literally every night feel like you are stepping into a page with your mum. And yeah, it was just a magic evocative feeling to remember that. And uh, I bought one for Zadie and two for my goddaughters and... I can't wait to read it to them. I went to go visit my friend Millie in Cornwall a couple of weekends ago and Farley and I um, read to her little boy, Jeff, every night. And it is just the most delicious thing. It's so fun. And it's so fun as like the friend of a parent to be able to do all that really, really gorgeous stuff and like never have to discipline And I just love reading to my friend's kids. So I can't wait to read this to Zadie and my goddaughters. And there's something I've realised is kids really like plot. They really like cliffhangers and they really like um, a kind of a yarn that, that unravels. And this book really, really has that. It's kind of swashbuckling and mysterious while still being very easy to follow. So I can't recommend it enough for a present for a godchild or a niece or a nephew um, it's a beautiful, beautiful kids' book, and I hope to read lots more of Madame Badubada. Thank you very much for our present. My pleasure. I can't wait to uh, force Zadie into a corner and bark it all out to her. I also loved Esther Perel, who was the last episode of the Open Ears Project, which I've mentioned before on this podcast. Loads of you have responded saying that you adore it as much as I do. It's a. It's just finished its first season. But it's a daily episode that's a sort of monologue from uh, someone talking about a piece of classical music that means a lot to them. And the classical piece plays at the end. It's become such a daily ritual for me. I'm so sad that series one is over. It's calming and meditative and it's a wonderful way to start your day. Esther Perel's episode is as divine as you would expect. She speaks at the beginning about the power of music and the sensory experience and psychological experience of music and how it links to memory. And interestingly, she says that one of the first sort of tests that she does on every couple who comes into her office, we should say, sorry, Esther Perel is a relationships therapist. She says every couple who comes into her office, one of the first things she does with them is play the song, their first dance song at their wedding and she said she watches their faces and their bodies and how they 
react and how they interact with each other and basically she knows at that moment whether this is a lost cause or not she's got a new book out hasn't she because i've just read an interview with has her. she there must be there must be a reason why she's doing lots of press yeah yeah she's i just think that's that. such an interesting and she said yeah. she basically can see whether something is dead or not by how they react to it's that quite, song it's like the malcolm gladwell of love yeah god i adore her um it's just it's a gorgeous gorgeous episode um but the bit that i would like to uh, play is when she's talking about her mother and also the piece she chooses is from Foray's Requiem and the movement she chooses is In Paradisum which made me bawl my eyes out because I sang it when I was a wee girl in my school choir I think that one of the first places where I must have heard music is when my mother would sing lullabies and my deepest connection with my mother was singing her tenderness and her softness came out when she sang much more than in other ways she would sing to me in Yiddish in Polish in all the languages that she couldn't speak to me in she basically could transmit her entire life and traditions that she had lost through the Holocaust so before the Requiem comes the lullaby Hilo comes from Stripe and Stare. Stripe and Stare have been called the most comfortable knickers in the world. I have three pairs of them and I have to say I do know that I'm in for a comfortably sheathed jacksie on the days that I pull them out from the knicker drawer. Stripe and Stare knickers don't ride up so there's no more hungry bum. This is a well-documented affliction of mine. I even wrote an entire article about it once <laughs> so I'm always happy to hear of anti-hungry bum undergarments. They're so comfortable you forget you're wearing them leaving you free to take on the day. Can I tell you a secret, Dolly? I was wearing a pair this morning. Why aren't you anymore? Because I like to feel loosey-goosey and easy-breezy for the high-low record. <laughs> Every pair of Stripe and Stare is a pair of guilt-free ninnies because <laughs> they are sustainably sourced. Only 2% of the underwear market is sustainably sourced, which is pretty shocking for a product that we all wear every day, unless you're a real dame, in which case... Hola! <laughs> I take both my hat and my knickers off to you. <laughs> Stripe and Stare knickers are sourced from beechwood trees and are softer than cotton, use 95% less water in their production and give no VPL as they lie perfectly flat against the skin. Stripe and Stare have been a hit with the press, having been recently described by the Evening Standard as insanely cool and described by the Telegraph Stella as the comfiest knickers around. Pandora Sykes describes them as the knickers I wear every day. And no, I was not paid to say that. Hilo listeners can get 20% off their knickknacks by using the code HILO on www.stripeandstare.com at the checkout. They're also available at Selfridges and on shopbop.com for international listeners. Many thanks to Stripe and Stare, both from us and our bottoms. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It's the story that grips the nation, nay, the world. 
It's been covered in the New York Times, Time magazine, on the BBC and discussed by Hollywood stars. Netflix have said that they might have to make a documentary about it. <laughs> Kira Knightley has announced that she would play Colleen. And if you haven't seen the clip of Ashling B explaining the story in excitable tones to a very baffled Paul Rudd, do Google it. It is, of course, dot dot dot, Wagatha Christie. <laughs> Agatha Christie is the name that has been given to Colleen Rooney. She is married to footballer Wayne Rooney, so someone has very cleverly attached WAG to Agatha after she spent five months investigating the source of leaked stories to the press. Determined to find out who it was, she started isolating her Instagram stories down to suspects until she landed on one woman. Cue the now famous ellipses, Rebecca Vardy, wife of footballer Jamie Vardy. With only Rebecca viewing her Instagram stories, she began to post fake news stories to see if they ended up in the press, such as gender selecting her next baby to be a girl, she has four boys, and that their basement had leaked. When the stories popped up in the tabloids, Colleen knew she had her woman. She shared her revelation on Instagram and Twitter, and within minutes, the story was received with glee all over social media as a modern-day tabloid whodunit. Why do you think this story piqued so much attention, Dom? I think it was the fact that we don't really see this sort of personal mess so up close anymore of someone so high profile. I think the rise of the personally controlled and curated social media channel has meant a dilution of those kind of he said, she said tabloid spats that was so much a part of British culture for such a long time. And I also think it was just the poirot of it, the dot, 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 before the name was revealed. I mean, it's literally the exact same syntax as those kind of Poirot soliloquies. And I think it was the idea of Colleen hatching a plan and seeing it out for a sustained period of time. It's so over the top. And actually, maybe for a certain generation, I think it makes us kind of giddily excited and nostalgic for that operatic melodrama of the footballers' wives' years. I loved Footballers' Wives. God, that was an insane show. I went on... But this um, feels like it almost could have been lifted out one of those scripts. So maybe that's why we, you know, find it so compelling. I went on Radio 4 on Sunday to talk about it and was really interested in the way the BBC framed it, which was as a setback, quote-unquote, for feminism. Two women fighting over their husbands, said presenter Paddy O'Connell on Broadcasting House. Camilla Long wrote something similar for the Sunday Times where she called it an orgy of bitch-slapping and thong-twanking and hair-yanking. What's the point of being married to a footballer if no-one talks about you? She wrote, If no-one talks about you, you're reduced to getting drunk in VIP clubs in Manchester. For most wags, it is a constant struggle to stay relevant. I'm not sure about either of those viewpoints. Colleen is busy raising four young boys, so you could argue that her primary motive in life is not getting drunk in VIP clubs in Manchester or staying relevant in the tabloids but I think Camilla's inhabiting a popular viewpoint when it comes to any kind of analysis about a woman married to a footballer quick side note I thought you were very very good on Broadcasting House even though I did get quite annoyed and not in like a pushy stage mom way because I saw other people on Twitter getting annoyed about it I did get a bit annoyed that you were interrupted and you weren't allowed to finish your train of thought but I think this is something that I do find quite funny with the BBC and I love the BBC this is not a um it's not meant to be an indictment of them but you do see it in a certain type of male presenter that the only way that we should we're sort of allowed to cover these stories is if they've got something to do with feminism or if you can bring it back mm. to fe- like it's it's mm. too embarrassing to cover 
a celebrity story, even though they have um, massive implications for the way we live our lives. Like celebrity analysis and celebrity criticism is um, a really valid way in which to kind of view society. Yeah, through... it's a temperature test, exactly. But Paddy, in reference to Dolly saying she's getting annoyed, <laughs> Paddy only wanted one answer from me. Yeah, but it was so annoying because he kept making the conversation go round and round in circles when both you and Moya, who was the other speaker, had so many interesting things to say about this story. Anyway, uh, Camilla's column I thought was very uh, well written and quite a surprising take, not one that I agreed with, um, but it was funny. She basically said that she found the moral superiority and that kind of gang mentality of rallying around Colleen by the other wags kind of hypocritical. I did think the payoff was very funny in which she said, it made me wish for simpler times like the last vast wag war of 2010 when John Terry slept with his best friend's girlfriend and gave his wife Tony a dressage horse to help her get over it. I think the gang mentality is inevitable of, as friends of Colleen and Rebecca came out to defend each other. You know, that's just friendship. But I don't think it's relevant to call this particular story a setback for feminism, as I said. I mean, yes, I can sort of see the point in that the idea of women having a spat in the public eye is historic, you know, handbags at dawn, etc. And it did remind me, um, as I mentioned already before, about when Brad Pitt left Jennifer Aniston for Angelina Jolie in the early noughties and he immediately became entirely erased from the scenario and instead there were baseball t-shirts that either said Team Jolie or Team Aniston um, as if he'd have nothing to do with any of it when he was arguably the primary force in that. But Rebecca and Colleen, yes, it is a spat in the public eye. They're not arguing about their husbands. They're arguing over a data Mm. breach, which is Mm. actually pretty serious. And... What I think is quite crucial here is that it's actually the first time that these WAGs... I mean, the acronym says it in itself. It stands for Wives and Girlfriends. They are very much seen as appendices to their husbands. And this is the first time that I've seen them centering themselves in their own narratives. They are always written about in the media in context to their husbands. And this time they were speaking directly to the media about nothing to do with their husbands. It did make me think about all the most sensational stories of our childhood and adolescence and how differently they would have played out if each defendant of the story had their own social media platforms. Because I remember the only way when a story like this broke that you'd hear directly from each party would be the following Tuesday at 9am <laughs> when everyone would go out to buy Heat magazine. Mm. And it would be when, when it was like reactions to these big breaking stories and someone in her own words. It, do you remember it would be a series of pictures of them sitting on a stool or a chair talking with no makeup on, looking very animated. And then it would be a transcript of the interview. But that was still through a filter of an editor. And that was the most unfiltered it could be. I think it says a lot about the way celebrities communicate now, this story, the shifting barriers between public and private and the uses of social media, that these celebrities are not only willing, but feel like the best way to kind of establish who they are or what their concerns are or something they're furious about in Colleen's case is to put it on social media. I think the fact that they're two women isn't really relevant Although someone did tweet me, if two men were having a row about a data breach, would we still be arguing about equality? So even in the fact that it's being framed as something to do with feminism is perhaps an issue in itself. I agree with you. And I think the problem is WAGs have 
culturally always been spoken about as kind of exhibitionists and sponges and people who don't do anything other than shop and go on holiday and get drunk. Which is a really misogynistic viewpoint in itself. I thought you were going to say, which is a really viable lifestyle choice (laughs) and pointed at me. Because you gestured at me. And I was going to say, well, look, it works for some. So that's how they've been caricatured, some would say very unfairly. So I think it's too easy to hook that opinion onto this story and see it as two bored housewives with nothing better to do than have a cat fight. Both of them have four children each. Mm. Can we just emphasise that? I don't think anyone who has four children each is bored. <laughs> yes, but I think some people would imagine that the that their husband's salaries may afford them a certain amount of help that means that they're... I don't know. I'm not... This is not my even opinion. with help for children, you're probably still not bored. No, I, th- I think you're right, but I do think it's funny how... Um, We're just so disparaging about them culturally and always have been, so we have to examine why that is. Totally, totally. And, and I think that the reaction to the story or even the way in which we're being encouraged to talk about it, for example, only seeing it as something to talk about feminism, yeah. is actually revealing in itself yeah and I think do do you know the other thing that I was thinking because I was like why have some people been so patronizing and and actually quite venomous about this story and I do wonder if naysayers would say the fact that Rebecca Vardy was selling stories from a social media platform which is still a public platform even if it's for only selected followers that some may say that that trivializes Colleen's claim of data breach because perhaps if you wanted full privacy around you your life you wouldn't you wouldn't share anything of your life on social media at all that's not my stance but I can anticipate that that's what some people might think even if you've only got 300 followers I think she's got 367 I don't know how I know that and a private profile I, I understand for me that would still feel like a breach of trust and and an invasion of privacy and and a theft of information and I understand I really understand why that would feel like a very urgent matter to to the victim of it but it's not the same as someone hacking exactly exactly yeah yeah there's a difference there is a real difference Paddy kept asking me if I felt guilty for enjoying the story but I've been really trying to interrogate if I enjoyed the story and whilst I really enjoy the name Wagatha Christie (laughs) and I love an ellipses as much as the next person I don't think it's that I actually enjoy this story as much as I have just found the varying responses to it and also the, the scale at which it went mass utterly riveting and I know we say this fairly regularly on the high low but I can't remember the last time I saw a story take over social media so completely and comprehensively and across all echelons, all types of ages, backgrounds. Worldwide. Professional remits were talking about this. My sister thinks the extraordinary response to it is because politics is so dire and we need a distraction. I would agree with that. It It was juicy and we needed a big glass of juice. A glass of juice. I think people are riveted by celebrity gossip as well. Always have been always will be you know it could have been Elizabeth Taylor back in the day now it will be Colleen Rooney and Rebecca Vardy and yeah I think normally as well you have to like mine for celebrity gossip you yes. have to like do the work whereas this was actually presented on a platter no one was foraging around mm. looking for a, a dispute between these two and Colleen just offered it up like that glass of juice two very important things here because I know if we don't discuss if we think 
she did it, people will ask us, did she do it? I just have no means of, of speculating on that. I, I have no idea. Do you think she did? You're no Wagatha. I'm no Wagatha myself. I have absolutely no idea if she did it. Genuinely no opinion either way. Although ugh, the evidence is pretty damning. Rebecca's claimed that her Instagram was hacked and has investigators looking into it and will likely sue for defamation. She famously called Colleen in a Daily Mail interview last week a pigeon who will shit in your hair if you fight with it. Quite like that. Doesn't r- doesn't roll off the tongue. Do you not think? No. Pigeons do shit in your hair. They've shat in mine. I was. St- I'm still a bit confused by what she meant by that, actually. Um, maybe that pigeons mind their own business until you fight with them and then they shit in your hair. <laughs> this is the most high-low-y, high-low segment ever where we're literally, like, dividing off into study groups. Going from, like, compare and contrast. <laughs> this is the cliff notes. <laughs> Would... Oh, my God, that's how we should really brand ourselves. The cliff notes of cat Of affairs. pop culture. And that is... Before someone's like, God, that's flattering, calling yourself a cliff notes. You know, that got me through my GCSEs. Cliff notes are also, like... Uh, pretty shit so <laughs> no maybe we're the what was the one Cliff that I love? not always written very BBC well BBC Bite Size but I think that's very flattering <laughs> was Colleen wrong to take it public without speaking to Rebecca first what would have been your tactic Dolly it's so beyond my realm of imagination because I can barely confront even my dearest friend while sitting in a house with a cup of tea. I'm so, like, con- confrontation-averse. I don't even respond now. When people tweet me and tell me that I'm the worst columnist who's ever who's ever lived, I don't even respond anymore. So I can't even... That's such an unsatisfying answer. I'm such an unconfrontational person. I can't even imagine having a confrontation in a, in a public sphere. So you were basically never going to do that via Instagram? No, I can't imagine I ever would. But that's nothing to do with morals. That's just to do with cowardice. And also, I just can't really be asked. That's my response to basically everything, as you know. CBA. I just can't really be asked. Would you have done it? I I think it's pretty odd that she didn't speak to her first. She must have known this was going to blow up. I mean, I doubt she did. I doubt she thought it was going to meet Paul Rudd. Um, But... She was obviously furious, wasn't she? I mean, she'd yeah. spent five months sitting on this story. Yeah. So by the time it exp- she, <laughs> she'd been on this whopper, like you've been on your <laughs> Rod Stewart whoppers. I do feel sorry for Rebecca. Um, kind of irrespective if she did it, if I'm totally honest, because she is seven months pregnant with her fifth child. Um, I'm also seven months pregnant, but not with my fifth child. And I know that you feel vulnerable at that time. And there have been some pretty hard to see pictures of her weeping it's interesting the pregnancy thing because this is this has rubbed some people up the wrong way the fact that her being pregnant is has been referred to by her or her people or even the press is in this in this way that that to not garner sympathy but people have found it difficult that it's being used not as an excuse but as if she is incapacitated or, or very ill or something I think that's a really interesting point and I think that there is there's a bit of a cultural dichotomy I have certainly found in the way that pregnant women are demeaned and not accounted for culturally but at the same time as you say treated almost deified that's what I that's so, what I, I think people found I feel uncomfortable with both to be honest yeah. I I think that we could work on both ends of that scale um 
But there is, I think, as most women would say, a definitely a sort of um, emotional side that comes from being close to giving birth and a sort of vulnerability um, to do with, I don't know, various different membranes of the world. You know, you're increasingly in your own sort of baby bubble and right inside you have a baby that's about to come out into the world. So I think it's more just that it's quite a strange time Mm. and that makes you vulnerable. Mm. And so I feel for her as a woman who is in a similar state of weebledom. Yeah. But... Weeble. Yes, a weeble. Do you not know what a weeble is? (laughs) No. Google a weeble. (laughs) Go on, Google it. It's exactly what I am. Do you know what a weeble is? Guys, where have you been? I I don't even know where it came from. I'm a weeble, right? So, CJ, that's a weeble. And I think we both have to be very diplomatic and say, no, Pandora, my darling, you don't look anything like a weeble. They're these sort of round-bottomed toys. CJ, Pandora doesn't look anything like a weeble, does she? No. a haircut, though, actually. (laughs) Um, So I I just feel for her in that way and that I can't imagine anything worse. But can't imagine anything worse irrespective of being pregnant and I think that's an interesting point you make about that being used to garner sympathy I am sure that Camp Vardy of course sounds like an exotic holiday I'm sure that Camp (laughs) Vardy are doing everything they can to garner sympathy right now and it is perhaps a not inconvenient fact that she is seven months pregnant CJ points out that there's some snobbery here in terms of how the press and public have responded to the women and therefore their story. Colleen has a hallowed, spotless PR record. She's been with Wayne since she was 12. Rebecca... No, actually, I went into a deep dive about this this morning. They've known each other since they were 12. They've been going out since they were 16. Do you remember the first ever paparazzi picture of her? I was obsessed. I've gone back through all of them this morning of her in her school uniform walking to school. It's kind of iconic. White socks, it is. White socks pulled up, black puffer jacket, ponytail, black slip-on shoes. I can remember it like I can remember the pictures of... um, Kira Knightley and Jamie Dornan in their seatbelts. I, <laughs> I went and looked at them this morning, as I say, and I just, it reminded me that it was at the time, because she's only a few years older than us, so she would have been doing her GCSEs, you know, just a couple of years before we did ours. And I remember thinking, it, even at the time, that it felt like a modern-day Liverpudlian fairy tale, because he was, like, one of the most famous men in the world at that point. And then in contrast, Rebecca got together with Jamie Vardy when he was already famous and there was a lot of acrimony around that and neither his or her parents came to the wedding. Both Wayne and Jamie themselves have had fairly dicey personal records. Wayne and the alleged multiple stories of him being with prostitutes. Jamie Vardy and his racist slur in 2015. But again, the men haven't really come into this. Wayne Rooney's remained silent, best idea I'd say, whilst Jamie Vardy has unfollowed Wayne on social media. Quite Kardashian, that. It's pretty obvious as well, I think, where public sympathies lie. Police have been involved in the abuse that Rebecca has received. One message read, fuck you, dirty, sly, C-word. I hope that baby dies inside you, bitch. (laughs) I found that really hard to read. Um, And not just because I'm pregnant. I think there is just... There is no countenance for messages like that. Mm. Absolutely extraordinary. Just going back to the unfollowing. I know, it's great, the unfollowing, isn't it? I always it's like... Un- it's the performative unfollow. Yeah, I always like these details of people unfollowing in a controversy because I wonder who is being paid to track that or maybe they're not being paid. 
I think there's technology. Oh, I see. I see. Because I was thinking... I think there are just, like, flunkies that look... I, I think 100% there are tabloid interns who look at who Kylie Jenner has unfollowed. Yes. Because every time one of the girls' bre- sisters breaks up with someone, the other sisters unfollow them. Yeah. That's, so it's it's a fun- nod to the paparazzi, isn't it? It's funny you should say that, because I did think to myself, maybe this is what the unpaid internships of newspapers now for. So, like, if my... I would have enjoyed that a lot more than getting coffee. If my unpaid work placement at the Evening Standard when I was 21, I wonder if they... had If they if I could put that experience into 2019 now, basically they would just give me a computer with all the tabs open of Colleen, Rebecca, their respective husbands, and I would just be asked to sit there pressing refresh all day, waiting for someone's number to go down. It's got to be a job. It has to be a job. If this is your job, will you email us? (laughs) One of my favourite columnists, Marina Hyde, writing for The Guardian, was very funny about the whole thing. She called it a clash of first-generation wags, so the early noughties wags, versus the second-generation wags, so those post-2010. And she compared the World Cup in 2006 in Baden-Baden where the WAGs Victoria Beckham in her micro denim shorts and tank tops Cheryl Cole in her Von Dutch trucker caps were blamed for England losing the World Cup because they distracted everyone their men, the paparazzi anyway she compared Baden-Baden to Nam and Marina who was actually there at the time writes, I don't care if Rebecca is four years older than Colleen, if she wasn't in Baden-Baden she'll never really understand the 2006 World Cup was where I saw Victoria Beckham wearing heels in a swimming pool <laughs> it was where Sven Goran Eriksson Sven, 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 Gordon Erickson. God, that's a real moment in time. Where the hell is he I now? Know. Anyway, he was... St- God, a Nancy Del Olio. Anyway. Did he have a thing with Ulrika Johnson? No, we can't do this because I will go down that route okay, too okay. long. It was where Sven Goran Eriksson was giving players billeted in another hotel known in tabloid terms as a nookie pass. This has been such a trip down memory lane, this story. I really story. need the loo. I can't talk about nookie passes. <laughs> I'm loving Wagatha Christie. It's a good note to end on the nookie pass. Yeah. And also, it's just, I love being reminded of those 2006 outfits. Von Dutch. Bet you had a Von Dutch little hattie, didn't you? I had a Von Dutch tank top. (laughs) (laughs) You patronising shrew. Thank you for listening to the Hilo. This is Dolly Alderton trying to do a successful outro, even though I always fail at them. You can follow us on Twitter at the Hilo Show. <laughs> you can email us the Hilo Show at gmail.com. We're very oh, what else do I need to say? You can rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. Please do, please give us a boost. We're very excited to see lots of you in Dublin. Onwards! This has been a very good outro, Dolly. I've done one for about two years. I think there are still some tickets left for our Manchester show where we will be on the 28th of October. But yes, Dublin first on the 20th and then Glasgow in November. Bye! <laughs> I've forgotten the exact date. Bye-bye! <laughs>